If you have your Bibles, uh, would you turn with me to Proverbs, and we'll be in um, Proverbs chapter 30 today. Uh, welcome back to a lot of the students. I, I was surprised to see a lot of the students are back already. I know there's some trainings going on, so if, you've, uh, if you're back from the summer, welcome back, and I hope that you, um, man, I hope that you have had a, uh, a great summer and are ready for a new school year. And speaking of students returning, you know, I think you know that most of them return next weekend. Um, and on the 18th is the new student move-in. And so we're going to do what we can to meet new students and to encourage them and help them get in their uh, apartments. So I think we meet at 10 a.m. at Kent Hall. I think that's where we're going to meet in front. Am I right? Has somebody confirmed that? Who's leading it? Anybody? Nobody? Okay. I think that's, yes, I got a couple of thumbs up. We're, that's where we're going to meet. And then we're going to have the meal here afterwards, and we'll be advertising that and, and whatever. But um, I want to encourage you to help with that. But also, you know, it's a great time. The meal is a great time to meet uh, families and new students. Uh, and so if you just want to come and hang out and meet some students, come do that, you know. Uh, help us move some fridges upstairs if you want, uh, you know, up the, up the steps of Kent Hall, but, or... Anyway, uh, that's what I do. I move fridges. That's my favorite thing. But this Thursday, the 18th, and then here, I think the meal is at 1 or noon. 11. The meal's at 11. Yeah. I just work here. All right, Proverbs 30, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Now, before I read that, let me just tell you where we're going. Um, this is our last week in Proverbs. We've been in Proverbs all summer long. If you're just joining us today, we're kind of in the wrap-up mode with that. And next week, Lord willing, we're going to go back to Matthew, which is our regular series, right into chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And there's, I've been reading Matthew again, and there's so, so, so much there for us, so much good good solid meat for us to feast on. But today we're going to wrap up Proverbs. I'm going to do that by reading verses 1 through 5 of, of chapter 30. So the word of God says, the words of Agur, son of Jekka, the oracle. The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God. I am worn out. Surely I'm too stupid to be a man. And I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Let's pray again. Oh Lord, I, I pray for your help this morning. I pray for your, uh, that your spirit would be moving in our hearts. I pray that your word, Lord, I pray that you would incline our hearts to your word so that we would trust not in ourselves, not in our strength, not in the things that this world has trained us to trust in, money, success, but strength, pray that we would trust in you. I pray that you would help me to prod your people that direction from the Proverbs. And we thank you for the wisdom that we see here and the hope that we see here. And Lord, we know, we know 
that our hope is in Jesus Christ. He is our only hope and we have no standing with you outside of Christ who has died on the cross for our sins, who was resurrected on the third day and now stands at the right hand, sits at the right hand of the Father on high and will one day soon come again. That's our hope. That's our only hope. Lord, I pray that as we go through this today, you would, you would point our hearts in that direction. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so to go or not to go to work on an egg. <laughs> in the 1960s, there was a strong advertising campaign for the egg industry. None of you remember that, probably. I, I don't remember that. I wasn't around. But uh, in the 1960s, there was this, mostly in the UK, but here too. You should Google it. It's really funny, okay? Google, not now, but Google go to work on an egg. Um, it's a commercial and it's really funny. And the idea was that a chicken egg is so healthy, it ought to be what fuels your day. Okay, so you should have an egg a day, go to work. But here's the thing. In the 1970s, there were a series of three studies that came out that seemed to draw a connection between an egg and cardiovascular disease. Cholesterol rises, you have more heart attacks, that sort of thing. So doctors began telling their parents to go to work on a bagel or something other than an egg. Don't go to work on an egg. When the 1980s arrived, people were less concerned about the connection between eggs and heart disease. There was some doubt that there was really a connection there. But they became very concerned that there was a connection between eggs and salmonella poisoning. So again, it became pretty popular not to eat eggs for breakfast. Don't go to work on an egg. They might kill you. In the late 90s and early 2000s, that message changed drastically. There were three big studies. I bet they were all funded by the chicken industry or the poultry industry. But three big studies, one in 1999, one in 2013, and one in 2018, so not long ago. And these all suggested that there was not only no connection between the regular consumption of eggs and heart disease, but on the contrary... Eating eggs might actually decrease your chances of having a cardiovascular event. So go to work on an egg. But alas, the most recent study, this one in 2019, found that there's not only, there's, there, there is a significant, according to this study, connection between cardiovascular unhealth and eating eggs. So now I think the tide will shift again, and I'm assuming the message will be don't go to work on an egg. So what's true? Should I eat eggs because they taste good fried with pepper and a little bit of salt and because they're a really good source of protein and because they go awesome with bacon? I probably do that study about cardiovascular disease about everything you eat with those eggs. Should I do that? Should I go because in 1960 and 1999 and 2013 and 2018, really smart people said I should? Or maybe I shouldn't eat eggs because in 1970 and 1980 and 2019, really smart people said I shouldn't. It's hard to know what's true. And that's the way it is with our words and our advice and our thoughts and our practices and our knowledge. 
even our observations. It's hard to know what's true. At best, people are only right some of the time. And we have lots of examples of predictions and proclamations and not proving true. Lots of them. So we can't trust what the world says. We can't trust the words of the world. Not so with God's word. As it says in verse five, every word of God proves true. Every word. Verses one through four speak of the limitations to even the best human wisdom. And then verse five gives us hope. There is not a single word of God that will prove false. Not one prediction, not one promise will ever fail to materialize. The word of God is sure and true. We won't ever read or hear a word from God that is false or that comes up short or is shown to be wrong. That's why we spent our summer in Proverbs. Because we need advice that is more sure than what the world offers or can offer. We need a sure word on how to live this life. We need to know how to lead our families. We need to know how to parent our children. We need to know how to love our spouses and speak rightly and spend our money rightly. How to spend our days. We need confidence in knowing which paths are best to take and which ones have pitfalls and drop-offs and lead to no good. And that sure word is Proverbs. Every word of God proves true. So again, today's wrap up, we haven't addressed the Proverbs in any comprehensive way. They're all there, by the way, online, if you'd like to go back and listen. Uh, Several of us preached them. Um, We hit all the highlights, or we hit many of the highlights. We didn't even hit all the highlights. We, we, We actually missed some major themes. There are significant portions of Proverbs we didn't cover because of our limitations with time. We didn't cover, for example, what the Proverbs teach on finances, at least not in any robust way. I think it's okay. We're going to get there in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus does address finances, uh, but I would have loved to have done that. We didn't spend any time on Proverbs 31. Would have loved to have spent a Sunday unpacking that. Planned to originally, but then decided not to. Many good themes left unpacked in this amazing book, but we did hit many of the major topics and themes. And today I thought it would be helpful to wrap it all up, to review And I'm going to do that with kind of a top 10 list of lessons from Proverbs. Not necessarily from the sermons that I and others have preached this summer on Proverbs, but from the book of Proverbs. And I'm going to do that like a a reverse fashion, you know, like a top 10 list, starting with 10, working our way down to the most important. And my goals in doing this are, I have a few. One is to remind you of these truths as we wrap things up. But also, I want to build your confidence in God's word for your life. I want you to see that God's word is trustworthy and true. And you can bank your life on it. People will give you all kinds of advice. All kinds of advice. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's, there, there's a, a diet for everything. The word of God proves true. You can trust this. I want you to have absolute confidence that you can go to work on this truth. These words will never prove wrong or unhealthy. You can trust God's word and you need to. We need to. So I want us to be reminded of these major themes and leave here today with our confidence in God's word proving true in our lives. So let's do this. The top 10 lists of 
lessons from the book of Proverbs. And I, I, I did crowdsource this a little bit. I asked a few people, sent it around on Facebook a little bit on social media, and some people responded. Um, so I'm just blanket giving you credit if you, if you help me narrow down on these 10. But number 10 on my list this morning is that the book of Proverbs is full of rich theology. Proverbs is theological. And we don't often think of Proverbs as a book of theology, but it's incredibly theological. In Proverbs, we learn about God. We learn what he is like. We learn about some of his attributes. We learn about his character. We learn about what he loves. We even, as we'll see in a moment, we we learn what he hates. That's theology. And Proverbs is theological. Let me give you a few quick examples. Look with me at Proverbs 20, verse 12. It says, The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both tells us something about God, right? And about us too, but about God, something glorious and good. We see because of God. The reason you see today is because of God. The reason you hear me speak this morning is because of God. God is the creator and he has created us with the ability to see and the ability to hear. And I would love to go on a tangent this morning about how good hearing is for us and how lovely seeing is for us. But I won't, because I I hope you know that. And if not, maybe what you ought to do is tomorrow morning, get up really early in the morning and go like I did on Saturday. I drove to the top of Kings Canyon there and I watched the sunrise and I heard birds singing. And I knew God did all of that. God made the sunrise. He's the creator. He made those birds that sing and he made them to sing and he made that sound pleasant and he even gave me the ability to enjoy them with the seeing of the eye and the hearing of the ear. God is the creator. That's theology. We also know that God is all-knowing. Proverbs 15.3 says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place keeping watch over the good and the evil. Later in, in verse 15, 11, Proverbs teaches us that God knows every inch of the universe. God knows everything, every inch of the universe. Even hell is fully known by God. Even the heart of man is fully known. I want you to feel that for a second. Your heart is fully known by God. It's theology. And in Proverbs, we see that God is sovereign over all things. Look at Proverbs 16, 33. It says, the lot is cast in the lap, but it's every, it's every decision is from the Lord. There's no such thing as chance or luck or chaos. God is sovereign over all things. Even the lot that's cast in the lap, that's God deciding. Even the heart of kings is not outside God's sovereignty. Listen to Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. That's, that's helpful to know that, right? That's helpful when, the, when, when we don't like the king or we don't agree with him or he's harsh to us. We can trust in God. In Proverbs, we see also clearly that God is the supreme judge of the universe. These are all the theological things that Proverbs teaches. Proverbs 11, 21 says, Be assured, an evil person will not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. Be assured. God judges everything. 
That ought to help you and give you courage in a world full of injustice. God judges everything. Proverbs is theological. We learn about God in this book. He is the creator. He is all-knowing. He is sovereign over all, and he is the supreme judge. Proverbs is theological. That's number 10. Number nine on my list is that Proverbs teaches us practical living. Now, I know this is what we think of when we think of Proverbs. Proverbs is practical, right? Like, it's practical. I think this point is probably easier for us to see than 10. Uh, That Proverbs is theological. Most of us don't think of Proverbs as theological, but we do see the emphasis on practical living. But these two go right together, and you know why? Because theology is always practical. Theology is always practical. And that's because, I mean, it has application. Truth has application. It might be hard to put together sometimes, and we might have a hard time seeing the connection, but that's basically what all the Proverbs are. They are practical application of theology. It's how you apply God's word to your life and the truth that you know about God to the way that you live. Theology that sees God as our creator and our all-knowing judge and the sovereign one over the universe. Proverbs is how shall we live in light of that reality. It's practical. And I could spend a lot of time with this, but really that's all of Proverbs, right? All of Proverbs is the practical application of theology. Right down to a market seller using a, an honest scale because God knows and God sees and God loves justice and he hates oppression and God judges dishonesty. Proverbs are practical. Number eight on my list is that Proverbs teaches us that there are really only two paths in life to choose from. And I know it seems way more complex than that. You know, like two paths, but there really is only two paths, the way of wisdom and the way of folly. If you recall from a sermon a few weeks ago, it's like there are dueling invitations. Miss Wisdom wants you, Mr. Simple. Miss Wisdom wants you to come to her party. It's a good party, and she has prepared it well, and she's inviting you to come. She's mixed her wine. She's baked her bread. She's prepared juicy meat, a feast for you. Come to the party, Mr. Simple. You're invited. But that's not the only invitation you get, right? There's Miss Folly yelling for you to come to her party and come eat her stale bread and drink her tap water. Her invitation, though, is seductive and appealing. And sadly, most of the world goes to her party. There are only two paths, and one is decidedly less traveled. That's a huge theme in Proverbs. Go the way of wisdom, the way that's less traveled. Number seven, and this is why this is so sad, um, that most of the world goes the way of Miss Folly, Um, that is that wisdom leads to flourishing and the way of folly to destruction. So these are two paths and now we know where they go. One goes to flourishing, to life, and one goes to destruction, to death. And that isn't only about this life, okay? It isn't only about, you know, that it's true, you know, you make bad choices, you make foolish decisions, you're going to wreck your life. And if you make good choices, things are going to go better. That's true. This isn't only about this life. And it's not also only about eternity. 
It's not only about where you will go when you die, to heaven or to hell. It's about all of it at once. The way of wisdom leads to flourishing now in your life and forever. And the way of folly leads to destruction now in your life and forever. That doesn't mean necessarily what people who preach the so-called prosperity gospel wish it meant. It doesn't mean that if you follow Jesus, your life will be easy and your pockets will be full and your health will be good. We live in a sin-cursed world and that's not how God has ordered things and it's not how God has ordered things for us. There's a lot in the Bible about suffering as believers, as Christians, as people who love Jesus. We all suffer. But it does mean that following this path, the one that God has set out for us, is always good for us. It's always better. It's always better for your life to follow the path of wisdom. It leads to flourishing. Friends, you will never wreck your life by following God. You will never wreck your life by following God. And you will always wreck your life by following folly. Listen to Proverbs 8, 35 through 36. Whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. And all who hate me love death. The way of wisdom leads to flourishing. It leads to God's favor. It leads to life. And the way of folly leads to destruction. Number six on our countdown is really representative of a few different devices that Proverbs uses to teach us wisdom. But this is perhaps the most memorable. Number six is that even the ant teaches us wisdom. So Proverbs 6, 6 through 8 says, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in harvest. Maybe you recall two big lessons that the ant teaches us from that passage. The, the first lesson that the ant teaches us is that she is diligent because God has designed her that way. She doesn't do what she does merely to please some chief or some officer ant. The wise ant is not an ant pleaser. She does her work because God put that design in her. He designed her to be that way, just as he has invested design and purpose in you and in me. Our highest motivation for diligence, our highest motivation for the way we do our work is not to please other ants. Our highest motivation is to glorify God with our lives and our work and our hands and our effort and our blood and our sweat and our tears. That's the purpose God has invested in us. Second, the ant does, and this is right to the heart of um, this passage, the ant does the appropriate thing at the appropriate time. And that is such a good lesson for us. We, we don't want to waste our time, our hours, our days, or even worse, we don't want to waste our lives. You don't, have, you, don't, you don't have to get all that old to realize that you don't have that much time here. You don't have to be that old. I'm, I'm only 48 and I'm seeing how fast time screams by. You're... You don't have, this is a vapor, this life that we live. We don't have days and weeks and months and years to waste. So doing the appropriate thing at the appropriate time, that's the wisdom of the ant. And that keeps us from 
wasting our lives. Number five on our list is really the emphasis that Proverbs puts on speech. You might recall that Proverbs spends more time addressing our tongues and our mouths and our lips. It spends more time addressing our speech than it does any other theme. And more than any of the major themes, themes like sex and finance and work combined, God cares a lot about our tongues. Proverbs addresses speech over 90 times. If wisdom is doing the appropriate thing at the appropriate time, it seems to me that Proverbs teaches us that wisdom in speech is saying the appropriate thing at the appropriate time. Our speech is super important to God. Number four, and I could, I could spend more time on, on, on that point, but we won't. Number four, there are things that God hates. I think we know that, but we don't consider the weight of that enough, or at least we don't often live our lives in light of that reality. There are things that God hates. We know that God is love, right? That's a famous verse from 1 John 4. We know that God is love, but we don't spend time considering the implications of that. There's implications to the fact that God is love. And one of those implications that is clearly taught in Scripture is that God also hates. So let me read to you Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. Now, I called that an implication of God's love, and I should explain that. And so I will, with a quick illustration. So I love my family very much. I love them. I love my family. I want their good. I want my family to be intact. I want them to be safe. I want them to feel loved. I want, them to, I, want, I, I, I want my family to be okay. I want them to be unified. I love my family. Those thoughts, wanting them to be safe and healthy and all of that flows up from my love for them, right? And it means that if I truly love my family in that way, I will despise the things that bring my family harm. My love for my family and their well-being means I will also hate what will destroy their well-being. I would hate what breaks up the family. I would hate what makes the family unsafe or divided. Do you see? And that's true in a perfect and holy way about God and his love for us, his love for his people, his love for his church, his love for his glory. God hates the things that oppose what he loves. He hates what brings harm to his people. Sin harms his people. He hates what distorts the image we are meant to bear. God hates what destroys the unity we are meant to enjoy. God loves justice, and that means he hates injustice. God loves unity, and he hates the one who sows discord. Proverbs is a weighty message. There are things that God hates, and I don't know about you, but I don't want to be one of the things or do one of the things that God hates. Number three on my list is the lesson 
the lessons that Proverbs teach us about relationships. Proverbs and wisdom in general transform relationships, right? Wisdom transforms relationships. Last week we talked about one massive category of relationships that wisdom transforms. Friendship. But of course, wisdom also transforms husband-wife relationships, father-child relationships, mom-child relationships. Wisdom transforms relationships. We could spend a lot of time on that. Friendships are transformed by wisdom. And I'll just read one verse, okay? Proverbs 18, 24. There is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Now, you, you might recall, I'm just going to go right to the end of where I went with my sermon last week, I think, on friendship. To understand friendship in a complete way, we have to know who that brother who sticks closer, I mean, that friend who sticks closer to a brother is. The friend who sticks closer to a brother is ultimately Jesus. Jesus is the true friend. He laid down his life for his friends. And ultimately, genuine friendship comes through Christ. It comes through Jesus. Jesus is the true friend. And true friendships come through Jesus. The wisdom of God's word is what teaches us friendships and transforms all our relationships. And I want you to do something. I want you to consider your relationships especially the ones that are strained or fragile. In part, those strained relationships are why you need God's word. Why you need Proverbs. Wisdom found in God's word transforms relationships. Okay, number two, as we press right into the heart of the book of Proverbs, is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So that's what Proverbs 9.10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. If we want to know truth and have truth shape our life, right from the start, we must fear the Lord. We cannot understand or apply wisdom outside of a genuine fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the lens through which we read all of the Proverbs and all of life. As one writer put it, the fear of the Lord is to knowledge and wisdom as the alphabet is to reading and numbers are to math or notes are to music. You cannot understand words and sentences if you don't know the alphabet, not in reading. You can't even get started with math if you don't know numbers. In the same way, you cannot even begin to understand knowledge and wisdom without the fear of the Lord. That's why I said early on in this sermon series that I think in the very first sermon, I think we've said it a lot, the Lord Jesus Christ is the beginning and the end of Proverbs. Proverbs point to him, stand upon him, find their fullest meaning in him. He is the threshold of all true knowledge and wisdom. Jesus is the wisdom of God. Paul called him that in Corinthians. Without Jesus, this world doesn't make sense. Hear that, guys. Without Jesus, this world makes no sense. I had a conversation this summer that illustrates that. I, I was talking with a, a brilliant scientist, and he was really fascinating to talk to. We talked for a long time. He was brilliant. He knew so many things about molecules and light rays and microbes and insects. He just blew my mind with complexity, such complexity that most of which I can't even see with my eyes. And I didn't know existed before that conversation. Just amazing stuff. And I asked him because 
This is a theologian talking to a, a scientist, right? I asked him what all that complexity that he has observed teaches him about God. And you know what he said? He replied that even if God exists, which he doesn't believe, that he is irrelevant to all of these things. Irrelevant. I was thunderstruck by that. Irrelevant? If God exists like the way that the Bible teaches that he does, and if he's the creator and the sustainer of all of those molecules and light rays and microbes, if those things exist through him and by him and for him, he's not irrelevant. We can know so many facts and so much truth about much of this world, but if we do not know Jesus, we don't know anything as it really is. We don't know those things as they really are. Geology, biology, entomology, sociology, physics, astrophysics, math, chemistry, they all ultimately point to God. We miss the very purpose of those things and the purpose of the universe when we study them as if God is irrelevant. And maybe we should even get specific. The incarnation, God becoming flesh and living among us, and Jesus' perfect life, and his vicarious death on the cross for you and for me, and that empty tomb, his resurrection, and his gospel invitation to trust in him alone, that's the foundation of truly understanding life as it really is. It's the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that leads me to the last one on our list, number one. And honestly, I think it's the application of all of these truths. It's found in Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. So the Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. You know, the Proverbs do show us how complex life is. Really complex. The Proverbs have taught me a lot about relationships. Namely, they have taught me how hard relationships are. I can see that in Proverbs. As I study Proverbs, I realize relationships are hard. Proverbs has taught me how dangerous this world is and how many pitfalls there are and how, how easy it is to get off the path. Proverbs has taught me how much we need God's wisdom in our lives, how much we need his grace. No one reads Proverbs and thinks, I got this. You know, I spent a lot of time reading Proverbs, an unbelievable, a ridiculous amount of time. It's not ridiculous, it's good. But a lot of time reading Proverbs this summer. I spent a lot of time. Not once did I come away from reading Proverbs in a deep, meaningful, thoughtful way and thought, I got this. Not once. Every time I studied Proverbs, I realized how much I am dependent on God's grace for my life, for today, for tomorrow, for forever. I need Jesus. You need Jesus. We need Jesus. The Proverbs, when read correctly, lead us to utter dependence on God and his grace. If you want straight paths, you will have to trust in him. We have to stop the pride of thinking that we can navigate this life ourselves. We cannot. But the good news of the gospel is that you can turn to the one who is able to lead you. 
to straight paths. You can turn. He will lead you perfectly. You can turn by faith in Jesus Christ and lean on his wisdom, lean on his grace and live. And to be wise, we must dwell in that spot forever. That place of not trusting ourselves, but wholly relying on him. We are dependent on God's grace and his wisdom for life. And it, the really good news is his grace is sufficient. I don't care, not even a little bit, if you like eggs. <laughs> I don't care if you believe the smart people who say they're good for us or the smart people who say they're bad for us. Bacon, that's a different story, but I don't care if you like eggs. No, but seriously, here's what I care about. Here's what I care about. I care that you go to live this life on Jesus. This is the big lesson of Proverbs. And I hope and pray that this summer has pushed you into that direction. Oh, or that today, this morning, that you're persuaded, you cannot do this life on your own, friend. You cannot. And you don't have to. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. That's the promise of the gospel. Go to live this life on Jesus Christ. Every word of God proves true. Every word. He will never let you down. I just want to invite you to talk to me afterwards. One of the elders, one of the guys who stood up here during the baby dedication if you have questions about that or want to talk about that more or something strikes you that you need to, you, you just need somebody to talk to you about that. I'd love to talk to you. I'll linger a little bit after the service for that purpose. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the book of Proverbs. Thank you for not leaving us alone in the dark, in this broken world that feels like a maze and left us to try to figure this out on our own. You have given us your word and your word proves true. Lord, I pray that you would help our feet today to stand firmly on your word. I pray that our lives would be shaped by it. I pray that we would stand and live on your sure word. I pray that we would choose the way of wisdom. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.